0: We've spent 16 weeks walking through Peter's letter to a group of scattered churches in the Middle East. In chapter 1, we had elect exiles and grieving souls in colorful trials. Consider your salvation and the church is sick and her worship shows it. In chapter 2, we had the behavior of a healthy church, God's stone building, living far away from home. And mistreatment and the gospel. In chapter 3, we had the difference the gospel makes in a marriage. Instructions for life and suffering. In chapter 4, we had arm your mind to follow Christ. End time preppers. That was a fun one. And fiery trials and a faithful creator. In chapter 5, last week, we had the flock of God. And this week, we have your needs God's supply as Peter wraps up his letter he's going to put a nice tidy bow on the letter's theme he's going to summarize everything here when you leave this letter this is what you need to take home with you those of you who teach the Bible which is quite a few in our church it's important for you to show your people why they need the text before you give them the text You don't just jump into it, leaving your people disoriented, wondering what effect this text will have on their lives. You need to whet their spiritual appetites. For instance, here's why you need today's text. It teaches you how to deal with anxiety. God has a remedy for it. It's not that you will never face anxiety again, but that you will be given Christ-centered tools to deal with it, to spot it, to process it, And ultimately knowing practical gospel steps to take to relieve the anxiety. The second reason you need this text is because you live in a lion's cage. Satan is after you. And when the lion reaches you, he isn't going to roll over so you can pet his belly. He's going to devour you, sink his teeth into you. You are his prey item. Satan eats faith. And sadly, some of you are totally unaware that you're being stalked. I intend to change that from the text. The third reason you need today's text is because some of you need spiritual oxygen. You're struggling to breathe spiritually. You've never been weaker in your faith. You're going through some suffering, some brokenness. Something has caused you to be weak, and you need strength. The fourth reason you need this text is because you need to be reminded how sweet it is to have a spiritual family. How wonderful the church is. How wonderful fellowship among believers is. How one of the greatest gifts God gives us while facing anxiety, the lion's cage, or brokenness is fellow Christians. And I don't know why you've lost the blessedness of Christian community, but this text will help you regain it. Church, If you have an anxious mind, come to this text. If you're living in a lion's cage, come to this text. If you're weak and need strength, come to this text. If you're lonely and need gospel friendships, come to this text. Now here's how I'm breaking down Peter's closing statements. I'm going to break it down like this. Your anxiety, God's care. Your adversary, God's instructions. Your aches, God's steroids. Your adversity, God's reinforcements. First, your anxiety, God's care. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 together and teach them as one unit because they are closely linked. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What are anxieties? Anxieties are any burden you carry. Anxieties are any load of trouble that you pull through the day. The word anxiety is comprehensive. It stands for everything that you might brood over. Anything you might lose sleep over. Big things and small things, important things and trivial things. This is speaking of phobia anxiety. Intense fear of germs or animals or objects or situations. This is speaking of generalized anxiety. Worry surrounding your schooling, your job, your doubts, world events, your kids, your hectic calendar. This is speaking of panic anxiety. Panic attacks, heart racing, quick breathing, hands shaking, palms sweating. This is speaking of social anxiety, always feeling like others are, joining, are, are judging you, uh, looking at you negatively. You always feel stupid or embarrassed or awkward and out of place. We tend to think of anxieties in the plural, like the list of things that I just mentioned. But problems tend to roll in like waves and they can congeal into one mass of anxiety. Now your life as a whole is just anxious and you can't really identify an area where you don't have some measure of anxiety. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, deny that you have anxiety. Pretend it's not there. No, this is not a call to suppress your feelings of anxiety. Peter is acknowledging that members in the local church will struggle with anxiety. Some pastors talk about this and take such a hard stance on it that it makes it sound like anxiety is a 21st century invention. Obviously, it is not if Peter writes to churches about it in the first century. Being a Christian doesn't automatically vaccinate you from an outbreak of anxiety. What are the effects of anxiety? The word anxiety in the Greek comes from a a verbal root Literally meaning to be torn apart, to be drawn in two different directions, to be distracted. Anxiety is the state of being pulled apart. Anxiety tends to divide and distract the mind so that that it prevents wholehearted devotion to God. We answered, what are anxieties? What are the effects of anxiety? Next, why do we have anxiety? You may think Peter is switching topics at every sentence, which is what I first thought reading the text, but he's not. He talks about pride in verse 6 and then anxiety in verse 7. The two are connected. Verse 7 is not a new sentence, but a a participle explaining how you do verse 6. Peter says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How do you do that? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. You might not think of anxiety as a prideful sin, but it is. Prideful people hold on to their anxieties. Humble people give their anxieties to God. Tom Schreiner says, when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. And the only God they trust is themselves. Worry constitutes pride since it denies the care of the sovereign hand of God. Alistair Begg says the very presence of anxiety is directly related to the absence of humility. Now I want to quote a a Jamaican theologian. Maybe some of you have heard him. Bob Marley. Uh, Bob Marley sang, here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note by note. Don't worry, church church full of theologians. I always, I dream for a church just like this. Well, Peter sings, here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note by note. Don't worry, be humble. But it's reversed. Humility comes before not worrying. Spurgeon called anxiety a disease, a disease that he fought his entire life, and he didn't hide it. Pride and anxiety are two sins, the former leading to the latter. Why do we have anxieties? Pride. What should we do with our anxieties? You should cast all your anxieties on God. Everything that you might brood over, anything you might lose sleep over, big things and little things, important things and trivial things, The Greek word cast is used in another place in Scripture when the disciples cast a blanket onto a donkey's back so that Jesus could sit on it. You cast your anxieties onto God's back. He has broad shoulders. He can handle it. This is how believers humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. You cast it and then walk away. But we don't always like to do that, do we? Any, any of you bowlers? Would you raise your hand? Bowlers? Okay. Three. right, uh, three. Three bowlers. Um, have you ever seen anyone bowl and after they release the ball, they contort their bodies in all types of ways to try to control the ball after it's left their hand? Don't do that with your anxieties. Once you cast them, let them go. This is the remedy for anxiety. Cast your cares on the Lord. It is not misplaced confidence. Why should we do this with our anxieties? What should we do with our anxieties? Cast them on the Lord. Why should we do that with our anxieties? Because he cares for you. Anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you. Tim Keller used to ask, do you know what it's like to do everything for someone and then they still don't trust you? You've given of yourself and proved yourself, yet still they question you. When you worry and you're a Christian, this is what you do. God says, I tore my son to shreds for you. And you're nervous about this? I showed you how much I cared by sending my son to die for you. And you think I'm not concerned about this much smaller thing? Anxiety questions the integrity of God's love. Anxiety questions the integrity of God's love. Anxiety is very common. But it is not innocent. Anxiety robs you from trusting in God. Failing to give your anxieties to God is prideful and arrogant. You're essentially trying to take the place of the sovereign one. Learn to sing. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. All my life was filled with sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong arms about me and he led me in the way all to go. The things that cause you anxiety will either drive you into the arms of God or sever you from God. Because God cares for his people, mundane anxieties are pointless. Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, live carefree before God. He is most careful with you. You are his personal concern. If you're anxious about it, God cares about it. You can paraphrase the verse to read, whatever is on your mind was on his mind first. The antidote to worry is believing in and resting in God's care for you. Anxiety. Anxiety. What keeps your hands from shaking? When you realize, verse 6, you're under the mighty hand of God. You can trust God's hand. If it's in your hand, it's not in his hand. The arm of the Lord or the hand of the Lord is a rich metaphor used throughout Scripture. And Peter is actually alluding here to the, to the same phrase in Exodus. There, God delivered Israel from slavery and oppression in Egypt. His mighty hand defeated Pharaoh. On the sermon review panel after the service, one of the subjects they're going to discuss is practically what does it look like to cast your anxieties on God? You can check that out on YouTube at, at 4 o'clock. Your anxiety, God's care. Your adversary, God's instruction verse 8 Be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour You have an adversary it's Satan Peter says he's he's like a roaring lion prowling around for the right moment to pounce and go for the neck You live in a lion's cage Earth is the cage of Satan, no matter where you reside. Satan has penetrated the coastlines and far into the interior. He stalks the educated and the untutored barbarian. You can go to villages where the name of Jesus has not yet been proclaimed, but Satan prowls around there. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan preacher in the 1600s, wrote a book entitled uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I don't have the book, but I I want it. I haven't read it, but I will steal his title here and give you three precious remedies against Satan's devices. Remedy number one, be sober-minded. We've heard Peter use this word before. In fact, it's scattered throughout the book. Peter knows the importance of being sober-minded because there was an instance... When he wasn't. Peter. Jesus was praying in the garden. And told Peter to pray. Peter dozed off. Peter was sleepy minded. Peter slept. His mind was not ready for battle. And as a result. He was ill equipped to resist temptation. When it came upon him just hours later. Be sober minded. Not sleepy minded. Confidence in God must not lead. To slackness. Remedy number one, be sober-minded. Remedy number two, be watchful. When a lion is on the prowl, neither the shepherd nor the sheep sleep, but both are alert and watchful. What do you need to watch for? We need to watch for a prowler. Davy notated that the word prowl speaks of the, the restless energy Satan expends to search for moments of weakness. He never sleeps. He's not human and does not need to rest. He does not need to take lunch breaks. He's constantly on the prowl. The prowler looks for a foothold. You must get rid of the footholds. If something is causing you great temptation and you can't resist it, close the door. Don't give the prowler a foothold. You you need to watch for a prowler and you need to watch for an accuser. The word used here for devil is diabolos, This speaks of a malicious enemy presenting false accusations. We often think of Satan in the principal role of enticing. But sometimes even more devastating is his role of accusing. Satan is the great accuser. But Jesus is the great defender. You need to watch for the devourer. Satan seeks to devour you. The word in the original language is sometimes used of swallowing prey whole. Literally, drinking down prey. This is not the time to sit back with your feet up. You need to be in baseball ready position. These readers had seen blood drip from the lips of real lions in the Roman Colosseums. They knew this was no time for sleepiness. In the garden, Satan was a snake. Outside the garden, he is a lion. You can see his snake likeness in the garden his indirect sneakiness, and you see his lion-likeness and suffering, his direct persecution. Either way, he has the same goal. Connect verse 8 with verse 9. Satan wants to destroy your faith. And he's fine. If bitterness does it, if materialism does it, if job advancement does it, if sexual sin does it, or if Roman crucifixion does it. He doesn't care about the means, just the end goal, the destruction of your faith. Remedy number one, be sober-minded. Remedy number two, be watchful. Remedy number three, resist him. Verse nine, resist him firm in your faith. Mount a resistance movement. The word resist is not passive, but active And this remedy is extremely encouraging to me because it implies your resisting can be successful. Many times the Bible tells you to flee from sin, but it never tells you to flee from Satan. It tells you to resist him. While the scripture never tells you to run from Satan, it does tell you that he will run from you. That lion will flee with his tail between his legs. The Apostle James writes, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Same word Peter uses here in the text. Same Greek word, resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. The one doing the running away is the devil. And it's not that he's afraid of you. The devil isn't afraid of you. But afraid of your God. Resist Satan the way Jesus did. With the word of God. There are a couple of ways you can do active, determined resistance. Be in the word of God and be with the people of God. Now, to clarify, contrary to what some churches teach, nowhere are we commanded to attack Satan or bind the devil. John MacArthur says it well, since the saints are not apostles of Christ, they have no authority over demons. Our only task is to resist Satan. He continues, verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You hop on a plane to Nigeria, to India, you go to any country and Christians are facing identical battles. Don't become so internal. Other people around the world are facing these same things. Peter does not want his readers to see themselves as isolated, scattered individuals but part of a brotherhood, a worldwide brotherhood resisting Satan. Now, who is Satan? In eternity past, Satan was a created angel, the most beautiful, perfect, sinless creation of God. And most scholars believe in a moment of free will, he attempted a coup against God and led thousands of angels to follow him in his ungodly rebellion. God cast Satan out of heaven for his cosmic treason. Satan and his army are now called demons. His army isn't getting bigger or stronger. It's always remained the same. Some angels, scholars believe, maybe all angels, were given a moment of free will. But now they're stuck in that decision. Good angels can't become bad angels and bad angels can't become good angels. Satan and his minions know their time is limited so they... Prowl, seeking to devour. By the way, Satan is not omnipresent. Omnipresent meaning everywhere present in the same degree. God alone is omnipresent. Satan can only be in one place at a time, so his demons are doing some of his prowling work. Sadly, when it comes to Satan, Christians have been either obsessive or dismissive. Obsessive or dismissive. C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors to which Christians can view Satan and his demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Don't be dismissive of Satan. He doesn't have a pointed tail and a pitchfork. He's not something to joke about or dress your children up like in little costumes. Also, don't be obsessive about Satan. Always talking about the underworld and curious of that evil. It's unnatural for a Christian to be obsessed with that. The psalmists often pictured their enemy as a crouching lion ready to pounce. Peter pictures Satan here as a prowling lion. Notice, he's like a lion, but he's not a lion. We know a better lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In C.S. Lewis' The Last Battle, there's an ape who came across an old lion's skin, and the ape cumbersomely sewed it into a costume, and he asked a donkey to try it on, and the old donkey agreed the ape began to put it on the donkey. The skin was very heavy for him to fit, but in the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing, puffing and blowing, he got it onto the donkey. He, 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 tied, he tied it underneath its body, and he tied the legs to the legs, and he tied the tail to the donkey's tail. The ape took a step back and he said, you look wonderful, wonderful. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. That donkey tried to pull off the impossible. And so it is with Satan. He's a cheap imitation of the great lion. So don't be overcome by the fact that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Remember his true self. He's nothing more than a stubborn and rebellious donkey living out his ordained rebellion against God. Your anxiety, God's care. Your adversary, God's instructions. Your aches, God's steroids. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. Let's stop there. Or or you you could translate it a wee while if you're a Scot. How long is a little while? A little while, that's a lifetime. The sufferings of this life will seem like a wee while when you're on the other side of them. You say, the pain my child is causing me has drawn out so long. Kyle, the suffering from my health issue has been going on for so long. The hurt this person inflicted on me has been so long lasting. Dear friend, on the other side, all you faced here will seem like a mere bad night in a cheap hotel. I am not minimizing your pain. I'm maximizing your hope. God will make the sad come untrue. Notice verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Now, God is both possessor and giver of grace. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. (laughs) Let's stop there. This is the destiny of the saints. The prospect of glory beyond enables you to endure now. Short suffering, long glory. Wearsby said, when when a non-Christian goes through suffering, he loses his hope. But for a believer, suffering only increases his hope. God called, notice the language is important. God called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You didn't call yourself. You don't have to provide transportation for yourself. Everything needed to ensure your safe arrival has been taken care of by God. The day is coming when there will be a great reversal. The humble will be exalted, as it says in verse 6. He continues in verse 10. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is uh, quite a forceful flurry of verbs, isn't it? It functions as a rhetorical crescendo. It's meant to lift you to a dramatic climax. Each verb is future tense, emphasizing God's promise to you. First, God will restore you. Jesus approached Peter on the shore. Peter was restoring or mending his nets. Same word. God is not denying that this world will rip you, tear you, harm you. But he promises that he will mend you. Bring your broken nets, your broken body, your broken spirit, your broken heart. He's a master mender. He will restore you. But there's more. He will confirm you. Christians of every age are very feeble beings. Church, God will come and make you endure to the end. He will confirm you. God will strengthen you. This word strengthen in the original Greek is sosteneo. It's where we get our English word, steroids. You need steroids to give your body a. Bi- I'll point to myself because obviously I'm on them. You can see that from my, from my biceps. It's 139 pounds of rock solid steel here. Um... Get back, Kyle, get back, get back. You you need steroids to give your body a boost to fight off certain sicknesses. And and God promises to infuse you with sosteneo, steroids, strength. He will give you supernatural strength to meet the demands of life. You hear that overwhelmed mother? You hear that frantic warrior? God will give you supernatural strength To meet the demands of life. This promise is just so wonderful, I want to sop it up with a biscuit. By the way, God is no politician. He keeps his promises. Promise number four, God will establish you. This is a foundation word. He will put concrete around your legs so you will not tip over. He steadies you. He will establish you. Think of the word foundation. Foundation. How firm of foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, fear not, I am with you, O, oh be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand. Upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Next, and I don't blame him. Next, Peter just burst into worship. And then he ends it with amen. That's an emphatic endorsement. Verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen means so be it. To him be dominion forever and ever. So be it. At the end of a public prayer or in a service in a church, when you say amen, that's adding your so be it to that prayer. All the other nations around the world said dominion belonged to Rome forever. The culture surrounding these churches said dominion belongs to Rome. But this little group of people knew the end of the story, that all glory and dominion belongs to God forever and ever Amen. Peter pulls a nasty little trick on us here. You think he's done. He's not. Your anxiety, God's care. Your adversary, God's instructions. Your aches, God's steroids. Your adversity, God's reinforcements. Peter came to Christ amid adversity. He walked with Christ through a life filled with adversity. He died for Christ while facing adversity. But God gifted him something beautiful. From the first day of his conversion to the last day of his martyrdom, God gave Peter reinforcements. Reinforcements in the form of Christian brothers and sisters. You need a faith family to go through all the adversity you will face in this life. Peter lists three people or three groups of people who helped him endure. The first is found in verse 12, Silvanus. Silvanus is a long form of the name Silas. You remember Silas. He was imprisoned with Paul for preaching the gospel at Philippi. That was years ago. But Silas is still faithfully with the people of God and he's with Peter now in Rome. He carried Peter's letter to the spread out churches in the Middle East. So we definitely know he was the carrier. Some believe he was more. Stephen Davy and John MacArthur, two men I really admire, believe he wrote this letter by Peter dictating it to him. And then later Silas went to smooth it all out. So Silas was co-author or main author of the book. They argue that the Greek is too polished to come from a Galilean fisherman. Now, I love these men, but I really disagree with them on this point. The same language is used in Acts 15 of Silas carrying another letter to another church. How good is the Greek? Well, the Greek is really, really good. But I think it came from the Galilean fisherman whose title, um, who, whose who's title, th- th- what am I trying to say? Somebody come up here and preach this. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm through. Peter wrote it, that's what I'm trying to say. All right? And if you got John MacArthur or me, I'd, I'd uh, you may go with him. You may want to go with him. Yeah. Peter says, I have written briefly to you. A short letter. It was a short letter. It only took us 16 weeks to cover it. I want you to see what Peter calls Silas. A faithful brother. This is no throwaway line. Here's the lesson. Don't withhold compliments from those who are faithful. Make a list of those who have been a faithful brother or faithful sister to you today and write a note this week and thank them. Who are the reinforcements? One, Silas. Two, the church at Rome. This is Peter's home church. He meets with them every Sunday to celebrate the risen Christ. And he will do this until he's martyred. But notice what he calls his local church, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Peter uses a feminine article to refer to the church. You know why? Because the church is feminine. It is the bride of Christ. He doesn't say the city of Rome, though. Notice he calls it Babylon. Now, historical Babylon is in ruins at this time. Plus, Peter never visited the ancient city of Babylon. Peter is using Babylon as a code word. He's telling these scattered local churches that they are exiles in the Roman Empire like the Israelites in the Old Testament were exiles in the Babylonian Empire. Rome is the new Babylon. These readers knew their Old Testaments. Their elders preach from the Old Testament. This is cryptic language, but this is also theological language. We are all exiles away from home, awaiting our return. Peter is sending greetings from the Christian community where he writes. Who are the reinforcements? One, Silas. Two, the church at Rome. Three, Mark. Verse 13, and so does Mark, my son. You may remember Paul and Barnabas after years of close fellowship and ministry companionship had a split because of John Mark. Why? Well, Mark was a deserter. He had thrown in the towel. He had failed the Lord and Paul and the church. Mark would go home after Paul fired him and he would write the gospel according to Mark. Scholars have long said that Mark's info for that gospel came from the mouth of Peter Mark's gospel was really Peter's gospel. Mark was to Peter what Timothy was to Paul. Peter's Timothy was John Mark. He's his son in the faith, his preacher boy. He had a big stumble, but he was worth recovering. Peter, before he signs off, he says to all the scattered churches, through all my adversities, God sent me a Silas. I really needed a Silas. Through all my hurt, he led me to the church at Rome. I really needed that local faith family. Through all my disappointments, he sent me a mark, my true son in the faith. I love watching him minister God's word. I have all these people, and you do too. They will walk with you through adversity as they have walked with me. Here's the truth. Gospel friendships will help you endure adversity. Now, Peter says in verse 14, and you have a little local church. This is your faith family. Take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. And then it it says, don't take it for granted. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, how are we to greet one another? (laughs) Um, All the single people are like, Yes. Verbal plenary inspiration. Let's, uh, let's break this down. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Augustine all mentioned this kiss of love in the local assemblies. This continued beyond the first century. According to Doriani, the kiss of love was a ritual of touching cheeks, not lips. The kiss was given from a man to a man and from a woman to a woman. The kiss of greeting was common when friends and family reunited. The kiss demonstrated friendship, kinship, affection. The Ephesian elders kissed Paul when they saw him for the last time. Paul talked about the same kiss of love, but he entitled it a holy kiss. In the pagan world filled with hostility toward Christians, a kiss affirmed that they belonged to the family. In the early church, whenever a person was baptized, They were kissed by the entire assembly. Now what does that mean for us today? Greet one another with a holy handshake? What does it mean during COVID? Greet one another with a holy elbow? (laughs) It it can be awkward hugging each other. Greet one another with a holy fist bump? We don't need to get into the weeds about all this. This was a customary way they showed affection. Still common today in many Latin countries. One scholar said for us, it simply means don't hold back your enthusiasm and affection when you come to the assembly. Don't hold back your enthusiasm and affection when you come to the assembly. One of the interesting things about this kiss is that understudies would give this kiss to their rabbis. Which explains Judas in the garden, clothing his kiss of betrayal And a kiss of love. Peter concludes his book with a peace wish. Notice. Peace to all those who are in Christ. None can enjoy peace apart from Christ. And all may enjoy peace who belong to Christ. Non-Christian. There is only one way to peace with God. That's through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. This is our glorious gospel. The only thing greater than our needs is God's supply. Church, I've I've tried my human best. (laughs) I've tried my human best to let you know that you are going to face anxiety. You're going to deal with anxiety, you're going to deal with Satan, you're going to deal with aches, you're going to deal with adversity. And that is why God gave you this passage. Rest in his care. Follow his instructions. Take his steroids. And befriend his reinforcements. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky. And are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky. As well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.